I wonder when you hear the word zeal, what do you think? Zeal is, means being enthusiastic, means being um, energetic and eager to achieve some goal or the other. And when you think of zealous people, what do you think? Um, I don't know if you've been following the news about David Cameron's memoirs. Um, it's been all over the Times and everything else. Um, apparently, he said this about his old university friend, Michael Gove. Um, he described him as a zealous and charming eccentric. <laughs> now, my question is, does David Cameron think zealous is a good thing or a bad thing? <laughs> I'll leave you to decide on that. But actually, we often do think about zealousness or, um, as a negative thing, don't we? Um, as British people, it's often said that we, we don't like to get too enthusiastic. We don't like to get overboard on things. Maybe Dee is an American background, can, can tell us more about that. Um, we don't like to be over the top on things. And actually, when people look at religions, um, they see zeal in religions, they often see some really negative things about them. A survey came out about 10 years ago and said this, that six out of 10 children say that religion has a negative influence on the world. When you think about the negative impacts of religion, you probably think of religious people with zeal, don't you? Um, think of militant Islamists. They're suddenly zealous people, aren't they? They're really passionate to achieve what they want to achieve. They, they want um, the Islamic kingdom to come into being, and they'll work for it, they'll fight for it, they'll kill for it, they'll um, give their lives for it. That, that zeal but it's a zeal that seems to lead to terror and to war and to hatred. And Paul, the person who wrote this letter of Romans, was someone who knew all about zeal. Before he became a Christian, um, he was a sort of pharisaical Jew, and he was certainly zealous then. In Philippians 3, verse 6, he says, As for zeal, when I was persecuting the church... For, for Paul as a Jew, zeal meant actually going out and using the sword, using arrests, using imprisonment, using even execution to try and prevent what he thought was um, a, an abhorrent twisting of the Jewish faith. But of course, Christ came and appeared to him, and he realized that he got it completely wrong. Paul knew that zeal can be a dangerous thing. And as he looked at his fellow Jews, in Romans chapter 10, verse 2, he says this, I can testify about them that they are zealous for God. They do have enthusiasm for God. They do have a concern to really live out what God wants in their lives. But he says their zeal is not based on knowledge. Their understanding, their thinking, their reasoning has gone wrong, has gone faulty. They haven't really understood what God is about. And so when you look at the Pharisees in the Gospels, um, as, as Jesus deals with them, Jesus comes along and he's doing God's work, but the Pharisees cannot accept it because they've got a distorted understanding of what God is about. So what Paul is saying really is that we need zeal. We need to be enthusiastic. We need to be um, eager to do God's work. But it needs to be done in a Christian way. And Paul, in this passage, is certainly encouraging zeal. In verse 1, which we didn't read, but um, is the sort of start of the passage, really, um, Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Isn't that enthusiastic? 
In other words, give the whole of yourselves, give the whole of your lives to serving God. Don't hold back. Don't be half-hearted. Really go for it. And in verse 11, he actually says, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. See, for Paul, zeal that is based on true knowledge, a real understanding of what God is about, a real understanding of the good news of Christ, a real understanding of the love of God, is a necessary part of being a Christian. And Paul himself, as a Christian, was certainly still zealous, wasn't he? He was still enthusiastic, he was still eager to serve God, he was eager to go from one place to another to tell people the good news about God, but his zeal had changed completely. Now it wasn't into forcing people by arrest and sort into agreeing with him. Now it's about persuading people in the power of the gospel. It wasn't about taking other people's lives, but risking his own life. As a Christian, Paul was zealous, but in a very different way, with a very different understanding of what God was about. You see, in this passage, Paul is encouraging us to be zealous. He wants us to be living sacrifices for God, but he wants us to do it in the right way, with the right understanding. So in verse 2, he says, do not conform to the pattern of the world. That's the pattern that leads to these sort of fighting and murder and so on. But, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. That you can test and approve God's will. Really understand what it is to be zealous for God. Really understand the sort of things God wants us to do and be and the attitudes he wants us to have when we're zealous for him. But he wants us to be zealous. He wants us to be committed. He wants us to be enthusiastic. But are we as a church today? Um, a guy called William MacDonald um, said this. The disgrace of the church in the 20th century, it's an old quote, you know, I know we're now in the 20th, 21st century, but the disgrace of the church in the 20th century is that more zeal is evident among communists and cultists than among Christians. Now, I'm not sure that's fair as a comment about the church throughout the world. But it's probably a fair comment about the church in the West. And the church in the West has seen decline. Maybe because we don't like to talk about religion. We're not enthusiastic for living out our faith. So what kind of zeal does Paul want? What, is, what does he want in the church? What is his model for zeal within the church? Well, that's what he looks at, really, in verses 3 to 8. Um, zeal in the church. Um, and I'll just want to focus very quickly on the first sentence here, because it's interesting that he introduces it in this way. He says, for, the break, for by the grace given me, I say to every one of you. Now, that's a bit of a strange phrase to put in, isn't it? I mean, it sort of feels like, oh, he's just sort of saying, you know, listen to me, God's given me the gifts, so, so listen to me. But he doesn't often say that. Why does he put it in at this point? Actually, he says something very similar right at the beginning of Romans. In Romans 1 verse 5, he says, through him and for his namesake, we receive grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And then at the end of Romans, he says something very similar. In Romans 15, 15, he says, I've written to you quite boldly on some points, as if to remind you of them again, because of the grace God gave me. So at the beginning, and here in the middle, and at the end, Paul is sort of saying, look, why am I talking to you as Romans? Paul's never been to the church in Rome. Most of the letters he writes are to churches that he knows. 
that he's had involvement with. But the church in Rome he's had very little involvement with. Why, why, is, why is he saying it here? He's sort of saying to them, look, I want you to understand that I'm not, I'm not really thinking more of myself than I ought here. I'm not going above my station in writing to you in this sort of authoritative and challenging way. Um, I'm doing it because I'm clear that God has gifted me by his grace. He's called me to be an apostle to the church. He's called me to, to write these kind of letters to the churches. I'm not stepping out of line in being taking on an authority over you that I shouldn't have. I want to be clear about that. I'm doing what God has called me to do. But you see how that clarity about his own role fits into what he goes on to say. Because he goes on to say that we shouldn't think of ourselves more highly than we ought. We need to think of ourselves as sober judgment. In other words, what he's saying is, don't, don't think that you're necessarily the person to, to be the apostle. You know, Most of us haven't got the right to write to another church in the way Paul writes here. Because that's not our calling. That's not our gifting from God. Um, we mustn't think of ourselves more highly than we ought. We might think that we should have a particular role within the church, but, but actually maybe we shouldn't. Maybe that's not what God's calling us to. Rather, we should be humble in our attitudes, willing to see the work God is using others to do, and to see ourselves as part of the body of Christ. We are one body with many members. That's what Paul goes on to say, isn't it? And he's saying that, look, we, will, we all have a role to play. We all need to be zealous. We need to be enthusiastic in what we're doing for the church. But for some people, that would look very different to the way it would look for other people. Because God calls us with different gifts and different callings and different directions in life. Um, and Paul goes on to list the different kinds of gifts um, that we might have, that God might want to use us to do. And as he does so, what he's trying to say here is he's saying that if you've got a gift from God, if God's calling you to do something, if you've given you certain abilities, then use them. Do them with enthusiasm. Don't hold back. But don't think you should be doing things that God hasn't given you gifts for. Don't be jealous of other people. Don't worry if you feel like you're not doing enough because you see other people doing more. Just do what you can and what God has called you to. And actually, as we go through life, that will be different for different people at different stages, won't it? Um, I know that having, with 15 years' experience in ministry, I can cope with things more than I could cope with at the beginning of my ministry. You might look at me, those who've been here 15 years, and <laughs> think actually you got worse, Paul, so <laughs> I don't know. Um, but, but I'm also aware that in another 15 years' time, my energy levels as an older person getting on to retirement will probably mean I can't do some of the things I'm doing now, or as many as the things I'm doing now. As we go through life, what we can do and what God calls us to do will change, it will develop. As we pick up new experiences that God gives us, as God maybe gives us particular anointings of the Spirit at different times. As we have different levels of energy, we're called to do different things. And we shouldn't be surprised about that. But we should do what we know we can do. We have a sober judgment, aware of our limitations, but not denying our gifts either. Eager to serve God. And so Paul gives us um, this list here in Romans chapter 12. And if you know your Bibles, you'll know that there's, there's a, a number of different lists, lists, not lifts, lists throughout the Bible. Um, 1 Corinthians 12 is the, is the best known one. Um, but I just want to read to you um, probably the simplest one, which is in 1 Peter 4. 
And it says this, each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. So he's saying very much similar to what Paul's saying here. If anyone speaks, he should do so as do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Did you hear what Peter was saying there? Peter was saying, look, use your gifts, but he gave two broad categories, didn't he? He said, it's the gifts of speaking. And if you're speaking God's words, do it with conviction. Do it as though you're speaking the words of God. And the gift of serving, if you're, if you're serving, that's more of a practical thing, then do it with the strength of God. Do it with zeal, do it with enthusiasm. Now, I think that's helpful because often in the list there is this division between the speaking gifts and the serving gifts and more practical gifts. And I think even when we come to this list in Romans, we can see that that's the case. Now, on the screen or on the wall here behind you, it's gone up already, slightly early, but never mind. Um, I've, I've written down basically verses 6 to 8, but this is a different version to the one that's in the church pew. So this isn't the NIV, this is the NRSV. Okay? Uh, and this one stays a bit closer to the original language. Um, and part of the issue with the NIV is it's trying to make it flow more, and so it's easier to read. Um, and it's got the basic meaning, but, but it's lo lost, lost some of the details, which may be important, maybe not be important. But I want to argue that they maybe are important. <laughs> so um, the NRSV here is, uh, notice that the first two, so it says we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. And then for the first two gifts, it talks about them as gifts, doesn't it? Prophecy and ministry or service in the NIV version. Prophecy and ministry. And then for the rest of them, and it does this in the Greek, it talks about the person who has the gifts. So the teacher, the exhorter or the encourager, you can translate that word either way, the giver, the leader, the compassionate one or the merciful one. Do you see the difference there? So, so the first two stand out as slightly different. And, and then the second two, it basically says, you know, as a teacher, teach, as an exhorter or encourager, exhort or encourage. So, you know, do what you're meant to do. And the next three, it, it's not saying just do what you want to do. It's sort of giving you a quality, an enthusiastic quality, a, a zealous quality to do it well. So the giver in generosity, the leader in diligence, the compassionate in cheerfulness. So, so you see the lists break up in that sort of way. And I think arguably what Paul is doing here is, is, is doing a similar thing to what Peter is doing. He's talking about the speaking gifts and the serving gifts. Um, and, and the first two are really sort of headings for the whole list. So I think prophecy here, he's talking about prophecy in the most general terms that prophecy can mean. In that it's basically prophecy is speaking God's words. I think you can talk about prophecy in that sense, that, that general sense. And that's what Paul's talking about here. Speaking God's words is prophecy. And ministry is just service, is serving people. And so then he goes, so having given that heading, he then gives two examples of prophecy or speaking God's words and three examples of ministry or service. He's not meant to be com the complete list, but this gives us a sense. So the two examples of prophecy or speaking God's words are the teacher and the exhorter. Uh, and I think the difference here is that the teacher is probably someone who is more about speaking God's words to the mind. So helping us to understand more fully the good news, helping us to renew our thinking, fits in very well with what it says in verse 2. Um, helping us to understand God's word and what it means and, and doctrine and all that sort of kind of thing. Um, because we need to think in the right way. 
We need to have the knowledge, don't we, that constrains the zeal. And then the exhorter or the encourager is, is someone who speaks God's word, but in a way not so much to, as to impart knowledge and understanding, but as to sort of really get people going, to rally people, to inspire people, to encourage them to keep up. And, and that, that's a slightly different kind of gift. But they're both important. Um, the second one, the, the encourager, really fits with verse 1, you know, to get people to li- live as living sacrifices. And the, the teacher, more to this verse 2, to the renewing of the minds. But both are important. So, but Paul's, what's Paul's trying to do here is saying, look, if, if these are your gifts, if you, if you are a teacher or an exhorter, it may be up the front in front of lots of people. It may be in small groups, in Bible study or leading Sunday club. It may be one-to-one with people. Um, whatever the way you do teach, and those are a variety of ways, um, do it with passion. Do it. Get God's word out there. Get people fired up. Get people really understanding what it's all about. Um, don't, be, don't hold back. And, and then when it comes to ministry or service, um, word means the same thing. Um, then he gives us three examples. So he talks about the giver. Um, and here's someone that will give financially. Possibly what's meant here is someone that would organize the gifts that the church has and, and give them out to people. So some, like someone organizing a food bank and giving out the food distribution. But because he talks about the giver in generosity, maybe it is suggesting people giving their own resources, their own finances. So, so if you're someone that God has laid on your heart to be someone who gives financially to the work of the church and to, to the work of to the needs of people that are poor, um, then don't hold back. Use your resources. Give generously. And, and think about the church. Just as the church needs desperately people to teach them clearly so they understand and to encourage them to fire them up, doesn't the church need finances to support the workers? Don't we need finances so that we can be generous to those in need? Uh, without the enthusiastic generosity of people like that, then the church will collapse. Um, and the leader in diligence, um, the word for leader here can mean um, someone who's in charge or ruling over, or it can mean someone who... Um, is caring for others. Probably here it's got more the sense of, of leading or ruling over. Um, it's used in other parts of the New Testament of providing leadership in the congregation or in the family. Um, but again, we need people that can give a lead, that can direct others. You know, we need people to organise the, the technology. We need people to organise um, the coffee rotor. These are important things. Um, we need people to organise... Um, Things like um, the food bank and um, Fanny Winter Shelter. Without the organisation, the church falls apart. And finally, he says, um, the compassionate or the merciful in cheerfulness. Um, part of the role of the church is to help those in need. Whether it's people within the church, maybe that includes visiting the sick and praying for them, or um, those outside the church, so things like the Winter Shelter. Um, we need people to do those things that people are cared for, that God's mercy is shown. And we want people to do it with cheerfulness, don't we? Or <laughs> with joy. We don't need to be coming across as grudging. Um, do you see what Paul is saying? This is the way the church works. These are the sort of roles, the sort of um, skills and gifts that the church needs in order to flourish. Um, but the church will only flourish if we go about them with enthusiasm and with zeal. So whatever gift, whatever role God has called you to at this stage in your life, do it with enthusiasm. Do it with zeal. 
committed to God as a living sacrifice. Well, that's um, verses 3 to 8. Let's move on to verse 9 to 13. And we've got a long list of, um, I think it's 10 or so, very short, very quick commands. Um, And it's sort of headed up by um, love, this phrase, love must be sincere, or love must be genuine. Um, And I want to call it zeal in action and attitudes. It's talking about a number of different actions and attitudes that that Paul is longing that the church will show, that there's a sort of way that zeal should show itself. Um, as it works itself out in our lives. Um, But most of all, it should be controlled by love. It should be controlled by genuine love. And what does Paul mean by that? Well, we need to remember that love is a word in English that covers a whole multitude of meanings. Um, The Beatles sang, All You Need Is Love. Do you remember that song? Um, All you need is love. Do-do-do-do. Okay, yeah. So, now, I don't know all the words of a song, but, but what do they actually mean by love? What, what sort of love do you need? Um, I'm not sure it's quite clear, is it, in the song. Did they mean you need some ro- romance in your life? I'm not sure I totally agree with that. People do live good lives without having romance, um, but it can be a good thing. Do you need romance in your life? Did it mean you leave, need the love of a good family around you? Um, that's a good thing to have, isn't it? I know some people do survive without that as well. Um, do, you, do you need a love of good friends? What kind of love do you need? Well, in Greek, you may know there's, there's different words for love. Uh, and one of the words that's not used very much in most Greek is the word agape. But it's a word that Christians picked up on and used for the love of God. So in verse 9, when it talks about love must be sincere, it's using that word agape. Um, and it's a word talk that is used of God's love, particularly in God's love shown us in the sacrifice of Christ. So Romans 5 verse 8 says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is a sacrificial love for those who don't deserve it. This is a gracious love, um, a love for those that may not have done anything good to us at all, may not um, have anything attractive about them at all. That's quite different to romantic love, isn't it? Uh, it's a love that you may have, for people you may have no um, family ties with at all. This is a love that God shows to us. And it's a love that we're called to show to others. Um, Paul in Romans 5 verse 5 says, And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. And in Romans 8 verse 9 he says, Neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is a, a committed, a lasting, an eternal love from God. This, this is what the world is all about, this kind of love. And it's this kind of love that is why Paul's zeal as a Christian was so different to his zeal as a Pharisee. He was no longer into bullying people because that's not love. Rather, in love, he deals with people gently, persuading them of the truth of the good news about Jesus. In love, he's willing to risk his life in order to get the good news of Jesus to people. It's a sacrificial love. It's a love where he goes from place to place, not because he has any connections with those places, but because he cares, he wants to show God's love to them as God has shown his love to him. An undeserving love but a love that's there, nonetheless, a powerful love. And so love is the sort of thing that should constrain our zeal. 
Um, and Paul goes on to list, some people talk about love must be sincere as a heading to the whole, whole of this section. Um, Paul then goes on to list a whole load of attitudes, and I'm trying to break them up into groups. Um, I'm not sure about the headings, but um, hopefully as we've got the last five minutes, we can, we can go through them quickly. So um, first of all, there's a couple of attitudes of the heart. He says, um, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Now, what we need to get here is that, that Paul is saying that don't be half-hearted about this. This, this is going, you need to be really committed about these things. So the word he uses for hate there isn't the normal word for hate. This is a, a really strong word for hate. Um, it's a word that means abhor, detest, loathe evil. As Christians, evil is why Jesus had to die on the cross, wasn't it? It was to defeat evil he did that. So if, if, if Jesus is so against evil that he gave his life for it, then as Christians, shouldn't we really hate it? And if we really hate evil, then we're not going to do the kind of horrible things that people look at at religions and see, see that the zeal leads to. We're not going to be doing the crusades. We're not going to be doing the Inquisition. Because that's evil. But at the same time, Paul says, cling to what is good. And the word for cling here is the word that's used of the marriage relationship. Um, it's, it's sort of talking about how Jesus talks about how husband and wife are sort of glued together. Stuck together, joined together. That's the same word that's used here. So it's all saying that don't just sort of say, oh, it'd be good to be good. Don't be half-hearted about it. Be totally and utterly committed to a good life. Just as a husband will be totally and utterly committed to their wife or the wife to their husbands. These are strong words. Paul really wants us to take this on board, to be passionate about being, doing the good and despising the evil. Uh, and the second set of attitudes, in verse 10, he's talking about attitudes towards one another within the close community of the church. So first of all, he says, be devoted to one another in love. And the word for love here is a different word for love. It, it's the word for family love. It's, it's Philadelphia. That's not the cheese. <laughs> or the American city, although I think the American city is named after this word. But it means brotherly love. It means family love. And Paul is saying, look, now as Christians, you're adopted as children of God. That means, you might think it's great to be God's, God's child. Um, you might not think it's so great to be brothers and sisters with the people around you in church. But that's the case. Just like sometimes it's not great to be brothers and sisters with people around you in your family. <laughs> they are your brothers and sisters. And just as naturally as a family, we, we care for those that are in our family, don't we? we? It's sort of intrinsic to who we are. We, we naturally love and support them. I know that doesn't always work out. Sometimes evil gets the upper hand, but, but that's the natural way of life for people, even those that aren't Christians. So as Christians, not, we don't ignore our natural families, but, but actually we take on a bigger family as well. We take on the family of Christ and we should treat them as family uh, and be devoted to them, he says, as family. Uh, and not only that to one another, he says, um, he reminds us about this issue of humility. We should honour one another above yourselves. Maybe we'll be clear about what our gifts are if um, more people praised us for what we do, rather than seeking praise for themselves. Do we honour one another about ourselves, or do we look out to what others are doing and want to praise them and encourage them and say, that was great. Tim, that was great what you're doing the piano tonight. Um, no, it was not done to me. I don't want people to go away saying that the sermon was fantastic but the piano was rubbish. No, the piano was fantastic and the sermon was a bit doring, but I managed to stay awake just about. <laughs> we, need people to, we need to praise one another. We need to lift one another up. Um, thirdly, 
We need to be, um, have an attitude towards, attitudes towards God that are really passionate, are really want to live as living sacrifices. This is where the, the zeal comes in. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor. The, the word there for spiritual fervor is literally, let your spirit boil. I spoke a lot about that this morning, but you know, be, be, let, get really heated up, get really enthusiastic for God. Um, and, um, so, but we're doing that, why are we doing that? We're doing it to serve Christ. That's what we're about. We're serving Christ. Um, and in, next, in verse 12, now are we up to? Yep. <laughs> verse 12, um, attitudes in life. Paul is realistic. We will find tough times in life. There'll be hard times in life. But as Christians, we will deal with those tough times. We will deal with those difficulties in a different way. Paul said in Romans chapter 5, verses 2 to 4, um, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. Paul says rejoice in hope. As Christians, you have a hope. Now, the rest of the world know that they'll, they'll get gradually older and more and more ill, and then they'll die. And that's it. What's that to look forward to? But as Christians, we know that life may get tough at times and be difficult at times, but, but actually that's just a prelude to the glory and the wonder and the joy that would go on for eternity. If we really believe that, that should completely change our attitude to this life, shouldn't it? We should, have, we should be able to rejoice in suffering. We should be able to persevere. Um, get the right word here. We should be able to be patient in affliction because we know it's only temporary. We should be faithful in prayer because we know we want to talk to the person that will bring us through these things. I read an article about prayer this week um, that said that when you pray for someone that's ill, pray convinced that God will heal them. But know that he might not heal them yet. We can be confident that whatever illness, whatever struggle we have, God will heal us. It may happen sometimes amazingly and miraculously in this moment, Sometimes we have to wait till eternity. But God will heal us. Finally, in verse 13, attitudes towards others. I think this is attitudes towards other Christians, but not the local Christians, but those from further away. Um, Paul says, share with the Lord's people who are in need. Probably what he's talking about here and referring to is later on in Romans, he talks about the collection he wants to make for the church in Jerusalem, the poor in Jerusalem. Um, if you know your geography, Rome and Jerusalem are a long way apart. And yet Paul is saying to the Roman Christians that I want you to give generously to support the Christians in Jerusalem because they're really struggling. And, and as Christians, we should be generous and willing to support those in need. We should see ourselves not just as a tight-knit community here and loving community here, but actually as part of the universal worldwide community of faith. And so it's right that we seek to support Christians in other parts of the world. As a church, we're going to do that with the Harvest Appeal as we do year by year. Um, and this year we're supporting a charity called Well Something. Um, which is about sorry, well fund, which is about some um, providing fresh and water and um, for people where well, that's not the case in other parts of the world. So we should share with those in need, uh, but finally we should practice hospitality. And the hospitality being talked of here is hospitality to strangers. It's not about just sort of having your friends around for a cup of tea. It's about um, welcoming people that you may not have known before. Um, one of the commentaries I read said this about. Hospitality. Hospitality is to be defined as the process by means of which an outsider's status is changed from stranger to guest. 
and strangers to guests. In other words, when new people come to church, they'll be, our, be strangers to us, but we want to make them feel like valued guests. It's that we reflect God's hospitality to us as they come to us. Now, there's a whole list of things here. The danger of a sermon like this is you think, oh, there's too much information overload. <laughs> I can't keep up. There's so many detailed things to say here. And, and you know, I could, I could quite easily talk a lot, a lot longer about each of the different aspects here. Um, but I hope you've got the thrust of what Paul is saying here. Be living sacrifices. Be zealous for God's. God has called you and gifted you. Be sober-minded about that, but use your gifts for the sake of the church. And, and God has called us to love. Make your love genuine. Don't, be, don't hold back. Be half-hearted. Really cling to the goods and abhor the evil. Really love the fellow Christians. Really go for serving God. Really um, rejoice even in the sufferings you'll face and really welcome um, and help those that are in need. Don't hold back. Go for it for God. Let's pray.